and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm going to talk about adjusting your career and evolving it as times change. And today's guest is the great example of the right way to do it. So I'm pleased to welcome freelance beauty editor and creative consultant, Janelle Hickman-Kirby, who I had the pleasure of working with personally. And we're going to talk about her career journey. I think it's really important, especially for people starting out and those who majored in journalism to understand the ways in which they can use their degrees. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you for having me. And I'm so happy to be reconnected with you. Can you start by giving us a brief bio? I'm a beauty editor and creative consultant who works primarily with small brands to get them from startup, like starting with initial product concept all the way to launch. And then in addition to that, I also write traditional beauty stories that you'd see online, but it's more kind of in the branding, marketing, editorial lane now, more so than traditional edit that we know. Would you say that being in the beauty industry is a destination or a detour for you? It definitely was a detour because when I started in the industry, I really, really wanted to be a fashion editor. And I also thought I wanted to be a stylist and really because of you is how I kind of pivoted into that beauty avenue because prior to that, I didn't even know a beauty editor was a job. Like until I got to Essence Magazine, I had no idea that that was someone's role. And I like the aspect that it felt like at the time, like now I think everyone's kind of a Jane or Jack of all trades, but beauty editors wrote a lot more than fashion editors did. And that's kind of what made me want to go in that direction a lot more. Yeah, and that's true. I majored in fashion as well because I didn't know beauty was an option. And I think now there is more information out there, like podcasts like this and other venues that give you information about the beauty industry. So it's not as mysterious as it was then. But still, I think people know more about fashion and are like enamored of it because of that. We have something in common. We both worked at Women's Wear Daily. What was your first job there? So I was an intern there. And that also was something that I fell into because I applied. It was a year between my junior and senior year, and I needed a internship to graduate. And I applied everywhere. So I applied to, I think, Jane Magazine, Lucky, Teen Vogue, WWD, and W. And like a lot of my interviews just didn't go well because I was really intimidated and I didn't know what I was really getting myself into. And WWD happened to be the last interview that I had. And I was waiting in the lobby because at that time it wasn't like this fancy, like, please have a seat. So I was just like standing in a corner and Court Williams at the time was who I was going to have the interview with. He like went home early because he had a nosebleed and his assistant didn't know that he was supposed to interview someone that day. So I just literally stood there for like an hour and a half waiting. And then she came down. She's like, oh my gosh, the court's not here. Can you come back tomorrow? And I was supposed to leave the next day to go back to school. And I just told my parents, like, listen, I don't have an internship locked in. I need to figure this out. Otherwise, I won't graduate. So I need to stay for an extra day. And then I had my interview with Court and he was just 
such a bright, brilliant personality. And we just kind of mesh. And he also happens to be like a person of color. So it's just like nice to see someone with an editor title because that was rare at that time. And then from there, it was just being in the fashion closet and organizing samples and taking things and getting people's lunches and running errands. But I loved it because it really opened up my eyes to all the things you could do in fashion. So it's like, I didn't realize there was like a sittings editor. And then it's like, you could be a photographer, you could be a prop stylist. So that was a really nice intro to say like, okay, the industry is much larger than you think. And there's a lot of behind the scenes roles that are equally as important as kind of like the faces of these brands. Yeah. Previously, people of my generation and maybe younger, a lot of people started their careers at Women's Wear Daily. And it's a really good training ground. I was not an editorial. I was a secretary in the sales department. And one of my jobs was to take obituaries over the phone. So I didn't have the same kind of glorious experience. But the woman that I worked for at Women's Wear Daily is the reason I ended up at L. So everything kind of pulls together. So Women's Wear Daily is a place not to be overlooked. Yes, definitely not. What's the skill that you learned at Women's Wear that set you up for success later? networking. I think it was because at the time there are so many different editors with different markets and I wanted to get to know all the editors equally. So it's like, I remember the people, I think Roxanne Gay was there, not Roxanne Gay, I can't remember her name, but Roxanne, Maite Alende was there, Court Williams, Nick Axelrod was an assistant back then, Cameron was another assistant, all these people, but they had different markets. And I used to read the newspaper, like the magazine, now it's digital, to see like whose byline was going through each thing. Because when I got the samples, I wanted to make sure that like, you know, if it was denim, there was a denim editor at the time. And I wanted to make sure that they got all their things properly. But then it's like someone else might have denim because they're styling out a jewelry shoot and they wanted to make it edgy. So unlike the other interns, I was constantly going to different people. Like if I didn't have anything to do, I was like, okay, well, maybe Court needs something now. Or like maybe Bobby Queen needs help with laundry. Like I wasn't trying to play favorites. I was just trying to learn as much as I could and just kind of make sure that once I left my internship, I'd have enough people or at least one of these multi-people would write me a reference letter so I could get a job later. So that was something I learned really quickly that you can't really play favorites when you're an assistant or an intern. You need to get to know everyone equally and be helpful to everyone. One of the things that I think is important is the networking that you can do while there as an intern, making an impression, not just on one person, but like you did on several people so that you're almost like top of mind when people think of stuff later on. It's not like you were the girl in the closet. Did anybody get to know her? You know, like that could also be someone's experience that they were in the closet and they weren't outgoing and they didn't know kind of like the rules of engagement and didn't think to communicate with lots of different people. They just did what was on the paper. Like, this is the job. This is the description. But I like that you saw that there was opportunity. Did you stay in touch with those people after leaving? I did. I'm still in touch with Court to this day. So he's now at, I believe, Banana Republic as a creative director. I follow the other editors along because it's like they kind of get infiltrated throughout Condé since that's what UWD was. And also just like emailing, because the one thing about this industry, you know, too, is like people move around all the time. So we'll talk about PR, which I think that was really helpful and like helping me pivot because it's just like your mind tracks people in a different way. Like, where is this person and what are they up to? So yeah, I do try to stay in touch or just up to speed about where people are and then just mentioning that connection, even if they don't necessarily remember me from the time or when 
we crossed paths or we didn't even cross paths. Right. One of the things that interests me about your career path is the moves that you've made, even early on. So you did trade and then you did in-house Victoria's Secret. Mm-hmm. What was the difference from going from a trade publication to an in-house machine like Victoria's Secret? Oddly enough, I think looking back, it wasn't as strategic as I thought. I think I was just like taking opportunities as I came. And what happened was one of Shiona Torini was at W and I was at WWD and I met her in the elevator and she went to Hampton. So I stayed in touch with her and I kind of did like small projects for her. And when I was graduating, I was like, I need a job. I need like an internship, like something. And she was like, oh, one of my friends works at Victoria's Secret. You should meet with her. So I ended up meeting with Nicole Gibbons and she was like, oh, like, you don't have any PR experiences is something you'd be interested in. And I was like, sure. Because at that time, a lot of magazines were closing too. So it wasn't like I had this plethora of, A, people were staying at their jobs for a lot longer. Like job hopping was not glorified or is kind of looked down upon. So people, even if you were an assistant, you may be an assistant for like three or four years. Like you just waited until someone left or got promoted. But then also like a lot of magazines are starting down. So I was like, I don't have that many options. And then those people who actually had jobs, I'm like, they're probably going to get shuffled around. So me coming in as an assistant isn't this high priority. So I was like, hey, I can do PR for a little bit. Maybe I'll like it because I've never really tried it. And maybe I can jump to a magazine eventually, or maybe like my career will be in PR. So I was pretty open-minded in the beginning. I like that you were open to PR and saw it as not only an opportunity to learn, but an avenue that could get you back to editorial because it was an adjacent field. Tell me about the work you did at Victoria's Secret. So at that time, it was kind of at their peak, to be honest. Like it was really bra launches, like big swim shoots, and of course the Victoria's Secret fashion show. So my main role was handling the samples for VSD when they used to have the catalogs, used to order like all the clothes and shoes and then collar and steward and stuff and get them to different magazines. Then with any launch we had, it's like usually the models would have like a custom t-shirt. I'd make sure like that got made. And then working with their stylist, because it's like at that point, they were getting booked a lot on like Jimmy Fallon or Late Night and like those different shows, or like Good Morning America or something to promote the Angel Push Up Bra 2.0 or something. So to coordinate to make sure that they got what they needed and then car service for them. So it was interesting because it's almost felt like I was an assistant to the model themselves, but then working on behalf of the company, but then also handling sample trafficking. Because the team was so small, it was a really awesome opportunity because I got to do so many more things that assistants never get to do. So it's like, I got to travel. So it's like, they're like, yeah, we have a party in Chicago. You should go. Um, Or like, we're going to the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. Like, we need you to make sure everyone's reservation is set up a towel and then you can come with us. So That was a really cool experience because I had a lot of responsibility and a lot of trust, but then there are also menial tasks like putting together our like 200 page press report and like getting clips for magazines and making sure that got distributed throughout the company. So it was a nice mix of definitely like these bonus cherry moments, but then also the humbling assistant experiences that we all have. Then you made your way to print and you worked at Essence. Ebony, and then you did digitalbet.com. So editorial was like one of your goals. Yep. What was it like working in editorial once you got there? And tell me about your experience, print versus digital. Getting from PR to print was more challenging than I thought, because I think even though I was young and I wasn't necessarily locked into a position, 
there's just a different skill set. So if you ask me like, who's at Glamour right now, I could run down the whole masthead easily because it's just something I needed to know. If you were like, who's the best contact if you need to pull at YSL or who's the best contact if I need to get to Chanel Beauty, I had no idea because I hadn't worked in that land. Also, I just think like the organization level that you have to have working in a magazine because it's like so many things coming in from different places versus being on the PR side. I was one person sending things out. So that was a little bit of a learning curve. Also, starting at Essence, it was such a small team and there weren't a ton of other assistants. So it wasn't like I was getting onboarded by someone else. The scenario for me was... I think they were in between assistants. I came in as a temp. Victoria's Secret wasn't a full-time job. It was kind of like a long-term contract, but they were talking about bringing staff. So I took a chance and left what was going to likely become a position to take a temporary position because I wasn't having luck with my other magazine interviews. And I was like, I need to get something on my resume that showcases like I can work in a magazine. So it was a temporary position. And every two weeks, I would find out if I was going to stay a little longer And I came in originally for fashion. And basically my role was to figure out where all these things were supposed to go back to because the other assistant wasn't keeping the greatest records. It's like making phone calls, like really being a detective, staying organized, like literally clearing out the closet. I know that I caught the attention of the beauty team and you're like, well, you're really organized. You could probably help us like navigate, but then also having the opportunity to actually write something and research and interview people. And that's when like the hair issues and the special issues are more common. So that was kind of like, okay, this is exactly the realm I want to be in. Do you remember what your first byline was? Either Beauty Finds with you. And then there was a column where we did like a black designer spotlight. Like, so we'd like feature someone like a different black designer And there was the front of book, like there'd kind of be like a trend piece. So I kind of like do that in tandem with the fashion editor. And then when you went to Ebony, you started doing video at shows. You took that role and expanded it because again, it was a small team. So you had a runway to kind of create the role that you wanted in a lot of ways. So tell me a little bit about being there and what you were able to do. Yeah. Ebony was very startup. So that was interesting because We were working remotely before working remotely was like a thing because most of the magazine was based in Chicago. So they had a New York office. So with that, it did give us some flexibility, but it definitely made us a little bit more like gritty. And we had to hustle a little bit harder because we either had to prove our case to Chicago or like make things happen by ourselves because our photo team and creative team was like elsewhere. So with that role, I was doing beauty and grooming, which was really cool because that also expanded me into that market. I had obviously my section that I was responsible for, like front of book. Anytime we did like a wow story, I'd kind of work with Marielle to kind of concept like what the beauty look would be or if we were going to do like beauty credits. And then Ebony.com was like becoming more of a thing. And like they had kind of more like general editors, but they didn't have like a specific beauty editor. So we'd kind of pitch franchises to them to see if there'd be some integration. But even at that point in time, like it was probably like 2012, 13, like digital and print weren't as aligned as they are now. Like it's very different roads and they'd be doing things that we had no idea. And like the magazine just, it kind of felt late online, but now I feel like people are a little bit more in step together. So yeah, basically it's like, there's three of us. It was me, Mary and Erica and like the style team. So we just did what we could and did what we enjoyed and tried to make it happen for ourselves. Having worked on small teams and large teams, the benefit of small and startup culture is 
you get to like blur the lines of what you're responsible for and grow your skill set without like stepping on someone else's toes. It's kind of like we're a team. We're all doing it together. So if you could pick that up and I could pick that up, you know, we get it done and we get to the place we all know we need to be. There's a difference between that. And when you're at a large team, like at a Conde somewhere, like everyone has very specific roles. Like here's the things on your job description. Don't venture beyond this because you might piss somebody off. I think having small and startup culture as part of anyone's background gives them an extra bonus of being able to do more than someone who might have been out of school or have the same years of experience. You have no fear about doing things that you might not have done before. Would you say that's true? Yeah, for sure. And I think also you feel more confident and like you can navigate certain situations a little bit better because it's like you have to be an advocate for yourself. The work has to get done, but I think there's also a nice understanding of being a collaborative partner who understands what the other person's doing. So sometimes I notice that there are more senior people that not necessarily skipped a step, but it's like they didn't do the things that I did. So it's like they didn't really understand all the steps that it took to get to where we were. Like they minimized it. And I was like, well, no, like if you want to have a shoot on Thursday, like these are all the steps leading up to it. And I'd think about like the photographer and the other people. And I'm like, we need to book the photographer. They need to have a studio. We need to do a quick model casting. We need to get her sizes. And I think when you're not that close to the work, you don't know what it takes to get from point A to point Z. Like you simplify it a little bit too much. So I appreciate those experiences. And I think it makes me like a better collaborator because I understand what other people would need to do something in such a quick turnaround. Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. You went back to PR for a brief stint and did fashion and beauty PR. Second time around, after having some experience in Jabelle going back to PR, how did you look at it? Like, what did you see that you didn't see before? Second time around, it was an agency. And it's interesting because in-house people want to go to an agency. Agency people want to go in-house because there's different pros and cons to each. So in-house means like you're only working for one brand. So you're focus can be a little bit more linear. You kind of know the larger scale. You're more abreast of like what's coming up. With agency, you're usually working in tandem with an in-house partner, but you also have like multiple clients. And the thing about clients is everyone thinks that the most important client. So juggling that was definitely difficult because when I went to HL Group, my clients were Pooj. So that's like Paco Rabanne, Carolina Herrera, Valentino, all these huge fragrance brands. At the time, as a startup, Algernist was a company that we were just working with, but they were just launching in Sephora. And then we had a plastic surgeon. So each of those people all had their own idea about what they should be getting, how they should get it, and how much time. And you really have to allocate your time to make sure that like everyone gets the things that they need because they can also all be launching something new at the same time. In addition, just because HL is, was a small agency at the time, like they've since grown, because they had such big fashion clients at the same time, when it was New York Fashion Week, it was all hands on deck. I couldn't be like, oh, I'm just on the beauty team. They're like, you will be at the Zach Posen show checking people in. Thank you. <laughs> so it was nice because you kind of got to see everything all at once. 
But I think I also underestimated just like the hours and the time and the personalities, both of the clients and the people in-house. And ultimately, just like the creative aspect, like you can be creative as a publicist, but it also just depends on your client. And I just didn't happen to have super open-minded, creative clients at the time. So my pitches were coming from Paris, so they're coming from Italy. So it's not like I had the opportunity to like write this flowery fragrance launch. You're like, do this and make sure it sounds good in English once it's translated. But I think the peak of that was I got to work on the Arise fashion show. So huge fashion show, obviously very specific demographic that they wanted to attend and they didn't have it. So it's like, I kind of got to lead that project to be like, okay, like here are the black girls in fashion who need to be at the show and like making sure that they're accommodated well, like making sure like seating chart wise, like people were like really taken care of. And that's kind of what put me in touch with a lot of black fashion girls. So that was a really good opportunity. And I appreciated that they trusted my expertise because like no one really had it. And that was unfortunate because it's like, if you work in PR, you should know who everyone is, but they're like, we don't know the girls who should be here, like who's important to this audience. In their minds, there weren't black girls in fashion when there were tons. Mm-hmm. One of the roles you've had in one of your pivots was working at Guilt Group. And I want to talk about this because it's important. I think when you took that role, a lot of people didn't understand the intersection of content and commerce. Like most people were like, oh, what are you working? Why are you working there? And it has become increasingly important. What was like the steepest learning curve making that switch? I was really worried about all the connections that I would lose because I was no longer a person who would be going to market. I wasn't a person who would be writing stories. And as you know, editorial and PR is like this push and pull relationship. And unless you really have something to give, unless you have a true friendship with this person, like there's no need for them to maintain the relationship. So I was just worried that I'd go to this e-commerce world and be like gone in the wind. Learning curve wise, I think that there is a balance of being able to sell something, but tell a story but marketing is very focused on being able to sell something. So having like this fine balance of like, it's interesting and entertaining, but it still is in as few words as possible, encouraging someone to purchase something. And a lot of editors like, yeah, it's so easy. Like I could totally do that. And it's not because there's a lot more feedback and approval and people involved. So that was kind of hard. And again, because a lot of people either came from the copywriting backgrounds or marketing backgrounds, or they're ad agencies, I didn't have a lot of people to teach me to go, this is how you do this. I just kind of had to figure it out. But the one thing about Guilt that I really did like, since it was such a young startup company, everyone was very all hands on deck. So if something wasn't working, it was one of those environments like, okay, we tried to do this really straightforward 50% off sale. Like no one purchased it. Like next time we want you guys to make it super editorial, like super conceptual, like do what you want to do and we'll see what happens. So that was nice versus like with the magazine, it takes a lot of time to pivot and understand that like this isn't working. We could see it in real time. Like this isn't selling. We need to do something else. And did you have like sales goals aligned to the stuff that you were working on? Some of it. So with Guilt City, that's where I started. There are sales goals tied to like getting X amount of units with the big brands. Like when we got briefed in, they'd be like, this is a $2 million campaign and we need to get to it. So it wasn't solely like editorial responsibility. It's like kind of a mix of like merchandising needs to be on board, styling needs to be on board, integrated marketing needs to be on board. But it was kind of a responsibility that you knew like this was a big deal and we needed to sell. And if it wasn't working, you should anticipate making changes very quickly to accommodate that. 
And I think that that's important because when you're working in editorial, you are just thinking about your creativity or the brand that you're working on's creativity and whatever the publication or digital site you're working on, you're just in that world and in that voice and not thinking beyond that. When you're in the content meets commerce space where a lot of journalism people will end up, there's just has to be a better understanding of what the needs are. What advice would you give someone who's early in their journalism career about learning that aspect of the business? I think try everything. Like don't get too married to one avenue and like be really, really open-minded when you're applying for things. So I think we all romanticize. I'm like a really good example. I just like really romanticize what it was like being a fashion editor. And like once I saw it, I was like, wow, it's a lot of pulling. It's a lot of contacts. It's a lot of arguing with publicists to get a certain amount of looks. It's working in tandem with credits editor at that time because you weren't writing something. You'd be working with your fashion writer to make sure that they're telling the story. If you weren't styling it, you'd be working with a stylist. So I think it's like actually seeing it in person and like in action will make you see like, oh, maybe this is for me and maybe this isn't for me. Also, just recognizing that you don't get stuck in a job. Like I think we've all realized like you can actually do anything you want. So you can try it. And if you don't like it, you apply for something else. It's not the end of the road or the end of the world. And I wish I knew that sooner too, because there were roles that I was like really, really unhappy in. And I felt like I just had to stay or like it would get better or like this is the way of the industry. And I think also prioritizing your mental health, your personal boundaries, like just certain things like that. It's also really important because you spend so much time at work, it doesn't really make sense to be miserable. And it affects everyone around you and it just creates an environment that no one wants to be in. So I think it's just a balance of like knowing your personal limits, but then also just being open-minded and open to trying different avenues and aspects and realizing that they're actually very interconnected. Like if you were in PR, it's not very hard for you to become in editorial and like vice versa. It's you showcasing that you're willing to do the work and you're willing to learn the things and take advice from others. Yeah, this is great stuff and really great advice about if you're not happy. I mean, everyone can tell a story of staying. I used to work with a woman named Franny and she said, I stayed too long at the fair. That was the first time I heard the term, I stayed too long at the fair. And it meant When you go to the fair and you love it when you get there and then you eat all the food and you keep eating all the food and then by the end you're sick and you just want to go home. (laughs) That was the way she described working at a fashion magazine. I stayed too long at the fair. I've been here too long. And the point you made about protecting your mental health, we don't think about that as much. And there are too many people that have suffered as a result, suffered silently too, because no one was talking about it. So they thought maybe it's just me, you know, when it's not, this is a consistent thing of being overworked, underpaid, (laughs) (laughs) underpaid and underappreciated Yep, and expected to kind of forego other parts of your life for the sake of work. Thankfully, people like you and Younger are saying like, no, we don't want to do that. So it's kind of forced the industry to shift. And I think there's nothing but good that can come from that. For sure. Now, you said when you went to commerce, you were like, oh, I'm going to lose my contacts. But somehow you managed to continue to connect with people because you've done a lot of freelance writing at major women's platforms that have print and digital and that are digital-only platforms, from L to Refinery to W and Allure to the Zoe Report and more. What do you need to make it as a freelance writer? 
That's a very good question. I think the first thing is time management because a lot of people see me and they're like, wow, like you write for all these publications and they didn't realize that I was doing it when I had a full-time job. So there's a level of crazy organization. There's definitely a level of sacrifice because there's a lot of times when it's like I come home from work, like eat dinner and then like start work again or go to an event that I had to do for work, come home, go to bed early, wake up early and like write something. I think it's really people maintaining relationships. And I think this is where the PR thing came in. Maintaining a relationship, not because you want something. The one thing of a good publicist is they really should know what you're doing, what you're up to, a little bit about your personal life and like definitely what you're working on. So they can integrate easily to be like, hey, Corinne, like I know that you're more like to gardening now. Like I happen to have like some beauty client that like uses botanics in it. And I think it'd be really interesting. And like maybe we could come up with a solution for something like that. So just like actually knowing what you do. Otherwise, if I'm like, hey, Corinne, I have a denim client, you're like, I'm not working on anything of that nature. It just seems like you don't care and you're just trying to push things on. Even though I was in e-commerce, I still kind of like just naturally kept up with what people were doing. Sometimes it would just be a quick email to be like, hey, I saw you got a promotion, like congratulations. Like I know how hard you work for that. So then people would remember that like, wow, like that was really kind and nice. And it wasn't with an intent for anything. So that is the kind of thing of like maintaining relationships, really getting to know people for who they are because you like them. And then just like kind of staying positive because it is a lot of no, like it's definitely not like I send an email to Vogue and they're like, yeah, sure. Write something. It's like, you kind of have to follow up. You kind of have to tailor your pitch. You might have to email someone differently. So staying organized, kind of having sacrifice if you're trying to juggle both. And then the third thing would just be like relationship management and also just asking people what they need instead of telling them what you want. So I'd be like, hey, like, I really do want to work for you guys. Like, what is something you need help with? Maybe it's not like the top choice for me, but at least it gets in the door and then people can see like, oh, she's helpful. She's useful. She turns her stuff in on time, which I didn't realize that a lot of freelancers don't adhere to that either. Like, I'm like, if I have a deadline, like I want to make sure that this person gets exactly what they need because someone else is waiting on it. And if I can't make a deadline, like communicating that so they also can see that I'm reliable and I'm being very aware of their workflow and how I also affect them either negatively or positively. Cool. You wear a lot of hats, so you're still doing that. You continue to write for these major publications, but you're also a creative consultant that does a lot of brand strategy, storytelling, writing, crappy writing. What skills are you calling on that are different than editorial writing when you're doing this? sales, to be honest. Like the first question I usually ask when I onboard brands is I'm like, what are your best selling products? Why do you think they're your best selling? Who is your biggest competitor? And what products would you like to become best selling? Because then from there, we can kind of figure out like, okay, we know these are like the winners. So it's like, we can kind of storytell around them. Like Glossier, for example, it's like, what do you admire about that? Or what are the things that are unique about them? And then what are the products that aren't selling well and why? So it's like, is it because you're not storytelling about them? Is it because you're getting negative customer reviews? So then we can kind of like fix those things. And then it's like a nice equal balance of like, maybe, you know, for your first email, we highlight a bestseller, but then we put in something that's not doing as well. So then people are going to open the email and they might be discovering this product for the first time. So it's a little bit more strategic, but for me, it's really about sales because even when people are like, I need to onboard PR, I need a copy. And it's like, we need to make you money because that's what your first goal as a business is. And all these things are extra. So it's like, even though it's like, I love 
editorial blogs. If the blog's not making you money, I'd rather drive more resources into your Instagram or your Twitter feed or your email marketing strategy. So those are the things I kind of think about, like, how can we get this person making money to be profitable? Or if they're trying to get onboarded into a store, it's like, what are the things you need to do? So it's like, for that, it might be like, you do need to build up your editorial blog content because they want to see that you have a point of view and a perspective. So it just kind of depends on like their ultimate goal. But for me, it's typically sales. I like reports to see like who opened this, what are they buying? Like, how did they click through? Because again, like similar to guilt, it's nice to see that in real time and we can change those things. Right. As if you don't have enough to do. You started Beauty and the Budget, the financial empowerment platform. Why'd you create it? And who is it for? Yes. I created that by peer pressure because my friends were like, you have to do this. I started budgeting in 2015, right before I moved in with Desi. And I just felt like even though I wasn't making a ton of money, I wasn't not making any money. And I just felt like things were coming in and things were going out and things were coming in and things were going out. We also work in an industry where like appearance is everything. So it's like, maybe you're overspending, maybe you're keeping up with the Joneses. So for me, it was very important to get a grip on my finances. So A, I felt like to mental health reasons too. Like just to be like, if I wasn't happy someplace, I would be financially savvy enough to be like, I can create an exit strategy versus feeling stuck. So the premise of like, I think anything is like just having a budget. Like I think before people are like investing and like thinking about 401ks, it's like knowing how much money you make, how can you allocate it? What are you overdoing it on? What are you underdoing it on? So beauty and the budget just is simply like a budget template that kind of like helps you organize your once your needs, your must-haves, and also makes you be honest with yourself about how you are allocating this money. So it's a zero-based budgeting plan. So that means like every single penny is allocated. So it's not like I think I spent, it's like you need like an actual number. So like when people are like, how much is your Con Edison bill? It's $90.91. And I know that because I track it every month. Then from there, like once you kind of put in your must-haves, you can shuffle money around to be okay, like maybe I want to focus on paying off my credit card, or maybe I want to focus on saving for an upcoming vacation, or I hate cooking. So I want to definitely make sure I have a good stack set aside for dining out. So the thing is, it's as restrictive as you want it to be. Like it doesn't have to be this like very not fun document. I think unless you plan on freelancing or unless you plan on generating income, like we all pretty much have like a set amount of income that we're making. And what are the challenging things about being a freelancer as those drought times that certain times of the year where they're not looking to do new projects and they're slow to pay? How do you help budgeting for that? So that is one thing, like when my friends are like, I want to quit my job. I want to go freelance. It seems so fun. I was like, It's all fun and games until someone has net 90 payment terms, which means they pay you in 90 days. So part of it is you do need to have a little bit of a nest egg saved up. The other part is you need to know how much you need to make. So I think this is another conversation for another day, but like rates are so all over the place. Like people are like, well, what are your rates? What are your rates? They vary so much. So you actually need to know how much it costs to be you so you can charge accordingly. Like, I think it's not even like about a standard rate. It's like, if it's $5,000 for you to live, it's like you have to move in a very different way than someone who's like, I only need $1,500 for the month. So that's helpful because then you can back into being like, okay, like if I need $5,000 for my month, in order to be okay for three months, I need $15,000. So then that can also help you plan and prepare before you quit your job or how you negotiate your rates. 
And then what I like to do is I always have like a little bit of rollover money each month. So just in case someone doesn't pay me, like it's usually about like $1,500. However I proceed with my budget, I just earmark a little bit of money. So if an invoice comes in late, if a story doesn't run and they don't want to pay me, if there's like situation with paperwork, I know that I won't be down to $0. And then the other thing that I always do is as soon as I hit send to send something, I send my invoice immediately after. So I'm not one of those people who only invoices at the first of the month or the last of the month. I invoice as soon as my work is complete, kind of similar to how you would at a nine to five paycheck where you're getting like paid throughout the month. I'm constantly getting paid throughout the month. So there aren't really these low tides of work. And I just try to do that. So then something's coming in, something's going out. And I also staggered my bills. So another thing that was helpful is instead of just having all my bills come out at a certain time, having them come out throughout the month, because hopefully money will be deposited. So when things are coming out, things are also going in. So a little bit of organization and I guess like navigating, like traffic controlling what's going on. But It really is figuring out like how much do you need to make to survive? And then once you figure that out, you're like, okay, like I can charge more and I can charge more. How many clients do you work on in a given month? I would say I like to have three clients in a given month. So I kind of do like big, medium, small, like people reach out about assignments and based on the scope of work, our deadlines, that's when I'll kind of decide if I can take on additional things. That's pretty good. How did the pandemic impact your business and getting clients? When the pandemic hit, I actually had a long-term contract with Revlon. So I will take contracts with people. So it's like I know that I'll be doing something for like three months or six months. So that was kind of an open-ended contract, which was nice because it seemed like it was forever. But if I wanted to end it, it was pretty easy to get out of. And then same thing for them. Revlon was seeing it very early on because they have so much distribution in China. So it felt like we kind of could tell things were shifting probably November, December. So for me, November, December also is not a bad time for freelancers, but it's like people are definitely not thinking about new projects and onboarding and like budgets are closing and like people are on vacation. So I couldn't really prepare to be like, okay, I should start reaching out to people and like get things in a row. In March, because everything that was going on, my hours got reduced because I was like on contract as five days a week. They're like, we need to shift you down to three days a week. So that gave me a little bit of flexibility to A, just take some time off because I hadn't really had any, but then B, just think about, okay, what is the plan? Should this go left? But I think because everyone didn't know what was going on, people were very hesitant to either onboard new people, take on different contracts. Unfortunately, with everything that was happening with George Floyd and like Black Lives Matter, come June, all of a sudden there's this huge push for diverse content creators and whatnot. So I can say that the beginning of the pandemic was very crazy in the sense of just a lot of uncertainty. The second half was almost too much because it felt like all this pressure that people now were like awake and they wanted to have these very diverse conversations and make sure we were talking about all these different things but the pressure still lied on black creators. So people were feeling burnt out. So even if I couldn't do a project, I would do my best to be like, hey, maybe Corinne's available. And then I talked to you and be like, girl, I am not available. Like I'm really stretched thin and I don't have any bandwidth. But some of the things were brands that it's like I'd been dying to work with for such a long time. So you didn't want to say no. So I would say July, August, I was burnt out. So I had to like take some time off because I'm like, I cannot continue working at this pace, saying yes to everyone 
because I didn't want it to be a moment. Like I also wanted to kind of set boundaries to be like, I would love to work with you, but we can work together in September or November. I just don't have the capacity right now and like hold people accountable. That was kind of like the ebbs and flows of the pandemic, but the beginning was very quiet and uncertain. And then the back end was a little crazy. I'd say now it's still consistent because people are being held accountable, but it's definitely not at the rate that it once was like last summer. Let's talk a little bit about kind of how the industry has stepped up and Do you think that this will be a sustained effort? I would like to think so, but I don't see more hiring because working with a freelancer is a very different conversation than having someone in the room. And I think that's when like equity comes in. And then that's when you can make sure things aren't tone deaf. You shouldn't feel like, oh my gosh, we have a Juneteenth campaign. I need to find a black editor and writer to write this. Either you should be training your in-house staff who is not so diverse to write these things and like get comfortable and familiar, just like we have to get comfortable and familiar with even the hiring conversation, because like a few people reached out to me like post pandemic to be like, oh, like we're hiring but there's still limitations on it. So like we could give you this editor role and it's like, I would come in as a senior editor or director, like unless you plan on having that conversation with me, like what are we really talking about? I think there's work to do in that sense, but a lot of people's feeds are like right back to normal. Like it's not as diverse. You're not seeing all the statements. They're not having the product assortment that backs up their claims. So it's like, you know, you have a skincare company, but it's like, they're not really thinking about does this work on melanated skin? What are things that we can do to target these concerns of this specific audience? So it's kind of a no man's land right now. Like some people definitely leaned into it, but I think some people leaned out of it and they're just like, we'll just go back to what we were doing. They just waited till the close was clear. They did performative measures and the easing back, the feeds have changed. Mm-hmm. And the conversations have changed. Even though I heard Aurora James say that she's doing audits and until those audits are made public, and people feel pressure again, I'm not sure that they will willingly continue along this effort. And you made a really good point about the difference between hiring a freelancer like yourself and having someone in-house. And it should be a both-end situation. We're talking about equity and supply chain, which includes freelancers of all stripes, freelancers and experts in all areas of business that they're doing, as well as having people in-house beyond the receptionist and making sure that the people that you already had have room to grow. Like you can retain them and promote them, train them. It's something that I'm watching, like I hate to say I'm watching with a side eye, but I am watching with a side eye. We all are. What do you think the unsung skill is to do all the things that you do? I think it's wanting it. You really have to enjoy what you do because... Being a freelancer is kind of sometimes a very quiet, solitude moment where I don't get to interact with a ton of people. So it's kind of like once I get my assignment, I don't really have to talk to my editor or like my client until it's time to submit something. I think the other thing that I'm like learning constantly is just graciously accepting feedback because when you are working with brand founders, they're very close. It's very near and dear to them. It's something that they started from scratch. So while you definitely have like professional expertise and a point of view, they also have a point of view of what they want their business to be or how they view their business. Because I've seen that like go very left when you are a little bit too aggressive with the founder, or they're not ready to have the conversation that you're like, we need to push this forward. And then I really think time management, it's just like one of those things where you really have to be on top of your time because yes, you do have this open 
schedule that you can make to whatever you want it to be. But then on the skewing side, it's also very easy to fall into overworking yourself. So it's like there are definitely days when it's like I'd be at my laptop at 7 a.m. and I'd look up and it's like 9 p.m. at night and I haven't eaten anything and there's still so much work to do. So you have to also set boundaries with people. Just because you are paying me a flat retainer or a fee doesn't also mean that I'm just available 24-7. So if you need changes on something, you might have to wait. And like I started putting that in contracts like, All edits will be handled within 48 to 72 hours just because you change your mind in the middle of the night. You want something rewritten like I'm doing other things. People kind of think you're just like so close to them when there's other things happening. So those are kind of the things. But I definitely say time management, really enjoying it. And the nice part is you get to pick your clients. You get to pick your projects. So like pick projects that if you do have to spend a ton of time on, you're engaged and you're excited to like get them to the next level versus just doing things for money. Because when you just do things for money, it's like not enjoyable for anyone. Or if you don't ask for enough money, you become really resentful doing your work. And like, that's not a great experience either. That's gold. And I think a lot of people, especially when they start out as freelancers, don't ask for enough money. And they fall into the belief that I'm not worthy of asking for more. Then you say, I need to make X amount of money, but you're taking three times as many jobs because you're still trying to reach that goal. Let's move on to our fast track questions. What was the first beauty product you ever purchased? I'd probably say something from like Walgreens, Milani, or something very drugstore and like to the point. Probably like a clear lipstick or a clear lip gloss or like a little clear brow gel or something like that. What's the latest beauty product you tried? Sol de Janeiro, who I'm actually on contract with. They have a new body cream called Bomgia, and it's a moisturizing cream, but it has AHAs, so it's supposed to help with like KP and retexturizing, and it smells really good. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? Beauty advice I live by is like once you find something that works for you, like just use that. I know my skincare routine or like the types of products I want, so I'm not really up for trying a bunch of things. Beauty advice that I skip is that beauty has to be super complicated. It's really about personal preferences. You can try what you want. You can skip things that you don't, but it's such a personal journey and there's so many products so you can find exactly what you want. Um, It just might take a little bit of research, but once you find that thing, just stick with it. It doesn't have to be this chasing, like there's something better out there because there may not be. That's really great advice. What's the beauty trend you tried when you were younger that makes you laugh now? All the hair things. So I feel like it's like butterfly clips and colored extensions and blue eyeshadow, like just all the trendy, like frosted lip gloss. Like I just think about like Christina Aguilera with like her extensions. I wanted to do all that. And it's like, no girl, that's not for you. Who is your black brown beauty icon growing up and who deserves that status now? It's three. So it was always Tyra Banks, Veronica Webb, Naomi Campbell. And they still are because I think they were just always so confident in who they were. They also look the exact same, which I appreciate. Like, it's like they didn't change anything. When I think about like Black Beauty and like getting magazines, and, like seeing them in Vogue and like I had Tyra's book and just seeing Naomi and like Michael Jackson's music video and Vanessa Williams. I just think like those women, they stood out so much because there wasn't a ton of diversity, but they also seemed hundred percent themselves, not like this watered down version. So they're just like, here I am, take me for who I am. So those are the four women that I still am like, what are they doing? What are they up to? I love that. And I love that it's the same women. If someone wanted to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? 
don't tell yourself no until other people tell you no. There's a lot of things that we cut ourselves out on and a lot of jobs that I probably didn't go after that I was 100% qualified for. And if I just like sat down and made a quick list, so it's like, I want to be a brand marketing manager. It's like, I would probably have 80% of that skill set and the 20% definitely learnable. And like, had I known that it's like, I probably would have been more confident to be like, yeah, I could go into marketing. I could go higher in PR. I could do all these different things, but I let like my own self limitations make me feel like, no, like you're just an editor. Like you can't do these or you can't go for that role because you don't have the experience, but you just may have the skills. And I think a lot of things are actually very teachable. We just make it seem like it's hard to achieve. So I think that would have been my advice to my younger self and other people, like just really don't count yourself out. Like let someone else be like, you know, we really appreciate your enthusiasm, but like this doesn't seem like the right role for you versus you just being like, oh no, like I can't stretch or grow into that. Right. And you can always go back and ask them, what else do you think I need to get? I think that doors are open for conversations like that. And when you do, even if you don't get the position, it's an opportunity to find out, especially if it's a stretch role, what else you need to do? Like, we'd love to see you have more of X, then you can go out and get that. Your advice to your younger self is really great. And I think that traditionally it had been challenging because we were almost omitted because we didn't have the information. We didn't know what those jobs took because there were actual walls that people were putting up to block us from accessing the information and they weren't sharing it. But I think particularly in the last year, it is incumbent on everyone to be honest about stuff. And we can learn a lot about that and then we can apply that to our careers. Mm -hmm. I can't thank you enough for just giving us so much information. And for someone who's early career, still in college, this is like a blueprint to follow. And people who are mid-career who are thinking about being freelance, heed her advice. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top. And the most important step is the first one. So start right here.